Welcome back to the Frontier Podcast. How are you doing? Good to be back. <laughs> Good to be I'm excited for the day when people feel like starstruck being here, you know? Like when when are we when are we gonna be like famous podcasters? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that can be a goal for next year. Yeah. You get like stopped at South by Southwest. Yeah. Are you that girl who speaks in a monotone voice and talks about topics you haven't researched? Yes, I am. Indeed. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I feel like you got to have a shtick, some kind of thing. There's got to be a thing. Yeah. I accidentally went viral on TikTok last week. I wrote the wafer about it this week. Basically, I've had on my to-do list in my like personal triage <laughs> section that one of the things I need to learn how to do is TikTok because it's 2023 and I'm a marketer and I just it's a platform I need to understand. Yep. So I've had it as like a to-do to spend a week just posting, like making a TikTok every day mm-hmm. and just seeing what I can learn. Mm-hmm. And it's this whole thing. I listened to an episode of Lenny's podcast. It was about like shipping and your your shipping cadence. And I was like, I just need to like pull the trigger on a bunch of this stuff. So anyway, last week I made my first TikTok. And then I didn't log into TikTok for a week because I'm not a TikToker. Right. And then I remembered that I had posted the TikTok and I logged back in and it had blown up. What? Yeah, I'm pretty sure like they're, the metrics are actual like official blown up metrics on TikTok. Like I looked at my friends who are doing it and you know they're getting like maybe a couple dozen likes i had like forty thousand likes 40, yeah people like commenting left and right like go it was just like a here like here's some like gizmos and gadgets that i've purchased for my home office and honest reviews you know i've got this like prickly acupuncture mat kind of thing i've got my kneeling chair i've got like a hand heater it's like basic stuff uh, my ergonomic keyboard and people went bananas. So maybe that's my shtick. Maybe it's like I think you're an influencer. I'm pretty that's, sure. That. Yeah, I think so too. I've told my family they have to go through my manager now if they want to contact me. So it's a good call. It's a good call. Honestly, it's best for everybody. I think. Yeah, a little bit of distance. Um, yeah, you got to have those layers in between you. Know? Yeah, for sure. I mean. Yeah, I remember when I went through that, you know, <laughs> like yeah, 40,000 like post <laughs> your, your fame. Honestly, great. There's a couple of people on the team that I would be really unsurprised to learn were actually famous mm-hmm. at one point in their lives and maybe are still famous, just like in a circle I'm unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. You are one of them. Regis absolutely is one of them. I mean, the data doesn't lie. Every time he's on the Frontier podcast. It, the episode goes viral. So yeah, what's that sort of hiding? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's it. Actually, I think it's just you and Regis that I think we're secretly famous people. So if you're listening to this and you want to do some research, I would be grateful. Find out if my colleagues were famous. I've covered my tracks pretty well, but see what you can dig. <laughs> I guess step one is figuring out what your your previous name was. <laughs> anyway. Speaking of, you know, law and maybe crime, we're talking about a a legal case today in This Week in Tech History that may be well known, also may be a surprise to some people. You're stealing from us! Steve, we're not stealing from you, so don't tell me that. What the hell are you doing then? 
What is this that I keep hearing about you developing this? What do you call it? Windows? To compete with us? I'm not doing anything against you, Steve. Don't give me that crap! This case happened in the 80s, and so most of what we've talked about so far in these episodes have been kind of early, like mid-70s, random inventions and patents and clubs that, you know, now we know had a huge impact on just the shape of the technology industry today. But we haven't gotten into the 80s, and so this is like a decade beyond where we started with the series And it's safe to assume lots of innovation happened in the years in between, and also quite a bit of siloing. So the historical event today is that Apple sues Microsoft for copyright infringement. So on March 17th, 1988, after years of working together harmoniously, Apple decided that Microsoft's newest version of their operating system was taking too many liberties with design elements Apple considered proprietary and took the brand to court over it. Apple and Microsoft's cozy relationship came about when Apple sent Bill Gates a Macintosh in 1984, allowing Gates and his company to create productivity software for the computer. Macintosh, the computer for the rest of us. The development of Macintosh by Apple has been paralleled by the work of leading software developers. It's a great machine. It's a a step forward in terms of uh, the way it uses graphics and the speed. and uh, This is a machine that a lot of people are going to be able to afford that's a very, very useful machine. After the official unveiling, Gates requested that Apple license the software to outside, outside parties, primarily because his profit margin with Apple was so large. While Apple rejected the offer, it didn't stop Gates from continuing to build Microsoft. And in November of 1985, they released <laughs> Windows 1.0. Upon the release, a number of individuals at Apple sounded the alarm bells, stating that they believed Microsoft had stolen several design elements from the Mac OS. Because of their close relationship, however, Apple decided that they would license the design elements to Microsoft. Unfortunately for Apple, their legal team missed the fact that this license was also to cover all future Microsoft software programs as well. Imagine being the person who made that mistake. No longer. (laughs) No longer employed and man, what a story. So you can imagine the surprise when Windows 2.0 came out still utilizing those Apple designs. The main point of contention was that it was the GUI and how how users interacted with it. That appearance is based on what the industry calls a graphical user interface in which information appears in Windows and operations are carried out by pointing at objects and menus using a handheld device called a mouse a major selling point of the Macintosh. Apple was big mad about Windows 2.0. They skipped straight past the angry phone calls and threatening letters, and they took Windows to court. Unfortunately for Apple, a judge ruled that 179 of the 189 contested elements were covered under that license, while the remaining 10 were eligible for copyright protections. Wow, tough break. This loss marked a dark period for the company, one we'd hardly recognize today, of course, because you and I are currently talking, on Max and probably have these within arm's reach. So you win some, you lose some. Damn, I did not know that that happened. I don't know if, was this like a big deal? I don't know if you would remember because you were a music guy at this time. Yeah. I mean, I remember certainly like the ripple effects 
Really? It was always sort of in the lore, like, you know, um, I never studied it, you know, or really had a reason to reference it directly, but it was like, it was the thing that forced the industry to start thinking about concepts that they hadn't contemplated before, you know, and legal, legal concepts, like mm -hmm. in terms of IP and copyright law and things like that, that they, you know, there, there weren't precedents, there were precedents in other industries, you know? Right. So, no, I don't remember it directly, but I mean, it was, it, it was a landmark thing. I mean, it was, it's part of the, the whole, the whole Apple lore. And I mean, and all, and, and the relationship between, you know, Apple and Microsoft was a huge, it was a huge deal because then Windows went on to be super successful, create ubiquity, almost put Apple out of business. And then Microsoft had to bail Apple out later. And so you have this like, it's almost like a sibling type of relationship where there's like competition, but there's also interest in keeping each other afloat. To me, the interesting piece of this is when I think about copyrightable or patentable technology now, it's rarely hardware and it's it's also rarely like it, facets of ui and ux that we just assume are products of using technology for example like having data inside of windows right and using a mouse to point and click and of course that's because these are things that i've just used in my daily life essentially since i could talk you know um, but it's interesting to think about those as like patentable technologies and where the line is. I think that's the interesting part. Usually, it's, you know, functional things are that are sort of self-evident aren't typically covered. But then a unique or novel way of doing something mm. could be considered protectable. So, you know, there's there's this like inevitable subjective line about, you know, everything from from hardware all the way up through you know iconography like how close is too close what's what's an infringement <clears throat> what's a derivative work mm -hmm. what's fair use all of these things are are interesting and you're right you yeah. don't think about them now because we've had uh, decades of of uh, basically an interface and uh, uh, and having common components like these are these are this is just the way that it works. Like an OS itself right. is, is, is a pattern, you right. know? So yeah, it is interesting. Like how this thing had to really grow up. Exactly. And I, you know, I think probably in the seventies and eighties, what innovation looked like is much different than what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, a sense of usability and, user friction just in like learning how to how to use what you've created i'm not sure if it was as much of a priority then as it is today in my mind like creating not homogeneous technology but technology that's intuitive because a user has used similar technology before is in the best interest of a company and so there's pieces that you know you don't want to be very different from no. your competitors because you don't you don't want the 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 curve to be too high so that folks aren't willing to switch to your OS, right? Right. 
Right. So you can imagine getting in two different cars and all the controls are in completely different places. The pedals exactly. are on the sides and stuff. You can't, you couldn't do it and you couldn't do it with, with interfaces either. It's a great point. I think part of like the notion of usability is also involved evolved mm. because pre 80s, 70s and 80s, I mean, the usability was, was a functional definition. Right. Yeah. Does the software do what it needs to do so someone can use it and do their job? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But it wasn't user experience, which is kind of what it means today. You know, usability is about, you know, things like you were talking about, like, is it intuitive? Is it simple? Is it clean? Do I understand what I'm, what I'm doing? You know, it's, it's almost like it's built for a different user type, which is like, it's about making everyday lives of everyday people easier, not do, is it functional for an expert to do their job? It's just mm-hmm. a totally, totally different evolution of the, of the notion of usability. Right. It is interesting to think about if this bit of history hadn't happened and let's say Apple hadn't licensed their us to Microsoft, if Microsoft was building from zero with no reference, and let's pretend that the Xerox Alto also didn't exist, right? Which I'm pretty sure probably had these things locked in before even Mac. But if they were building from zero, I'm so curious to see like what that would look like. Like who's to say that a mouse is the best way to navigate on a computer screen? And who's to say that windows are the best way to consume information on a windows on a computer screen? It's the best for us because that's just what has been true since the onset of computers. Um, but I think you're right. It's it's interesting to think about how that concept of like what actually is good usable design is shaped by just that like homogenous experience at the outset. Yeah. I think the fact that we're looking at voice and gesture now sort of indicates that it the mouse isn't the be all end all. It was the best version of where we were and it's been the best version to until now. But now we're saying, well, why can't I just do this and wave my hand? Or why can't I just speak into an interface? Like the notion of the interface itself is, mm-hmm. um, is, is still evolving. So I think, yeah, it's, you're right. Like what, what, what is to say that down the road, another 20, 25, 50 years, there'll be a whole other notion of inter- what an interface even means. Um, Cause that's, we're sort of redefining that. I mean, that was the, the GUI redefined what an interface was and, mm-hmm. and the GUI ruled. And then, you know, to your point, things like mice rule and now voice is going to rule and then gestures are going to rule and then some implants going to rule and then some, <laughs> right? Like it's, Yikes. <laughs> it's, it's like the, the interface is kind of like this, this really interesting thing because it's reflective of the user. It's also reflective of the technology. Like it is the interface, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's the, it's the intersection of, of the technology and the user. So of course it's going to evolve. I'm also, I mean, obviously you are a product person and so you kind of have to operate in this space every day and whether or not you're aware of it and any of us are aware of it, I think is another question, but we're kind of operating in this like super narrow space between axes that we can actually play on, right? Like we're we're all confined by the 
the interface that's expected by users, right? So there, there's like one, one edge of the spectrum. And then on the other is, you know, we're confined by things that might be copyrighted or patented by other people. And that space in between is a space that we have to play, which I guess, depending on how you look at it, could feel really broad or could feel really narrow. But I'm curious about your take on like, what, what does it take to actually build a unique product these days that doesn't venture too far into either side of that spectrum? Building a unique product, to your po- earlier point about patterns, is not always the goal, right? It's not, it's not the goal to be different in the way that you could interpret the word unique, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, or fundamentally different, right? It's, I think the, the, the dimension that is most important is the idea of understanding of the user, understanding of the job that needs done, how many user types um, and functions are you trying to accommodate in any given workflow? And I think generally speaking, what we're seeing is more modularity. So it's not one size fits all. So, mm. so making a unique product is maybe making products that are, that narrow the focus of the user that you're building for. And the, and those workflows uh, can be, uh, even within the same product. So I think to, to me, it's, it, again, it's that intersection of like, who am I building for and what do they need to do and how can I get everything else out of the way? Mm. Even if a different user needs to come use the exact same product, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's only a, a handful of shared components, but I'm really building for something that I know, you know, intimately about what needs to be done. It'd be so interesting to track the progression of who am I building for over time? Because I mean that was that was Apple's. I'm pretty sure at one point it was their like public purpose. It was like mm-hmm. everybody has a computer. That's right. Right. And now what I'm hearing you say, and, and yeah, what I see with with other product companies that are really successful is they've got a really narrow scope of who they're building for and why and what those people need. And part of that is probably a you know a, a symptom of just a really crowded software space there's so much being built that it's kind of a death sentence to try to build for everybody but i'm curious if there will be kind of a return to that building for the masses versus for a specific user group yeah i think you know it depends on to me a little bit about what you're building you know it because if you're building if you're apple or if you're if you're microsoft you're building operating systems if you're linux you're building operating systems and so you know that has to be a little bit of an everybody here thing Mm -hmm. but then the point solutions that that exist on there i think that's where we're seeing you know a you know 10 10 different software companies become 100 software companies become a thousand software companies so you inevitably have to carve out a narrower niche even though you're inheriting a ton from the operating system or from the platform, the, 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 the end user specificity is really where the uniqueness comes in. Mm. Yeah. I'm also, you know, I'm obviously not a a product professional, but I feel like I've sat in the audience of our product (laughs) being built for long enough that it doesn't strike me that concern about infringement, like patent or copyright infringement, comes up a whole lot in the product development purpose and process. Does that feel true to you? Like, do you ever think about whether we're building something that already exists? No, 
and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I, I think people are comfortable with, with general patterns in software development. I mean, software development is to a large degree patterns. And so, mm -hmm. and patterns like we've talked about are good and interaction patterns are good. And there are best practice around, uh, you know, usability and user experience, and those are good. And, and so I think when you, you, you take all of the things that are sort of pattern based or repeatable or, or things that, that I've seen before, that's, that's 95% of what you're building. Mm. And then there's the, there's sort of how the style that you're doing it. And that gets pretty obvious pretty quick that if you're just copying something, if I'm copying Adobe, it's going to mm. be pretty obvious that I'm copying Adobe, you know, and, but I've got to copy it to the point where it's stupid. Like it, you know, it's right. not just going to be like a general hint at something. There are plenty of clones out there and there's plenty of, you know, it's a copycat world, but I think the line of like copyright infringement feels really egregious mm. most of the time, you know, it a little deeper in the stack, you know, it, it probably become, maybe there's some more nuance and like, you know, am I, am I actually creating something, uh, you know, of new value with an existing toolkit or am I just appropriating their toolkit and reselling uh -huh. it? Right. That's probably more true deeper. Um, but at the user interface level, I, I don't think many people think about, about copyright infringement that much. To me, I feel like we talk about it in three scenarios. And the first is how can we reduce our like internal thrash and just like find something that works and you know use that as zero and build from it the second is we're incentivized not to copy because what edge do we get from that right, right. like if somebody else has done it we're not going to market our way to more sales you know it's we have we have to be unique we're incentivized to be unique the last scenario in which we're looking at what already exists today is because we don't want to recreate the wheel, right? Like mm -hmm. if there's, if there's something off the shelf, there's something that already exists. Chances are there's an open source version of it, or there's a licensable version of it. And we're incentivized to not recreate it, not copy it, but just go ahead and use it because that speeds up our, our development cycle. That's the wild card of open source that I think really has propelled software development in, in terms of the evolution relative mm -hmm. to others, you know, technology on the back of open source has evolved way faster than other industries. And it's because mm -hmm. of exactly what you're saying, like reusability and building, remixing components in order to create something else that is new and creates value is way faster than starting at line one and reinventing all of that on the way to something that is valuable to the end user. Why, why, why would you, why would anyone do it that way? Mm -hmm. So yeah, like the supply chain of open source um, is really, really, really a, a big, a big variable when you compare industries, you know? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. It reminds me of like songs that are just destined to be bops are usually ones who are just sampling, you know, another <laughs> hook from a song that's been really popular. So one of the interesting intersections, I think, is the relationship between brand and product. Hmm. 
a lot of times the line is really blurry. And when you think about uniqueness, um, you know, it does the, do, do the interactions as a look and feel of the application actually fit the, the brand and the, what I assume about the target market or the voice mm. to your point about being unique, like the, the inheritance that comes from the brand it imbued into the actual product itself is also a thing. And that's, right. that also has to feel unique. You know, Gray, I've always thought that your, your career trajectory was like an interesting wild card, but now I see it's actually, there's similarities. I think you've <laughs> got like a secret toolbox. Tons of similarities. You know, part of, part of this that, that gets undersold is that, you know, software development is, is half art and half science. Mm -hmm. You're building functional things, but the, how you do that, similar to, to songwriting you know, and similar to create music. It's like there are, and that's why I think it some, it, the, the nuance and like determining what's infringement, what's protectable is really interesting in the same way that it's interesting in music, because I can have a bot that samples a thing, but if I sample it too long and have I crossed the line, if it becomes too integral, if I'm just like co-opting a chorus and that's my chorus, and that was also someone else's chorus, you can't really do that. You can make it part of a new chorus, but you can't make it the chorus. So like, yeah, we're all these things that are, I think, across the board, like a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, things, traditional art, music, film, and, and what we're seeing in software. And software just did it all really fast. Like everything else. Right. I've come to terms during this conversation that I have a new nightmare job. Like if ever I were to be punished in, in a next life, I think this would be the job I would have, which is a copyright lawyer. Awful. I think it would be terrible. Just all these examples. I'm like, God, no, thank you. Yeah. Too much. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> well, Gray, collectively, I'm glad that that is not our job. And also, this is just really fun to talk about a piece of tech history with you yeah. um, it was fun thanks for listening to the frontier podcast powered by gun.io we drop two episodes per week so if you like this episode be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and come hang out with us again next week and bring all your internet friends if you have questions or recommendations just shoot us a twitter dm at the frontier pod and we'll see you next week Macintosh to court. Macintosh? I would assume this means Windows. They took Windows to court. Yeah. Microsoft, not yeah. Macintosh. Okay, cool, cool. When, you know, oh my gosh, Gray, what's the last thing I was going to say? <laughs> we're incentivized, we're incentivized not to copy, of uh -huh. course. Well, now I have to say something because I've said I have three things. Three things. <laughs> um, I remembered it. I just marked this clip for Bill so he can slide it in there. Um, Thanks for listening to the Frontier podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.